This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Jim Gale, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you, Germ. I'm glad to be in the trenches with you, man. Let's change the world. Let's free the world. Let's help people see that it's up to us as individuals and families and then communities to free ourselves. And then once we do that at scale, then we we're free. Humanity's free. Don't you find it ironic? Uh, I'm, I'm saying the word trenches, and I normally mean that in the sense of war. But this time around, it's, it's actually it's quite sustainable and uplifting. Yes, the trenches that we use are called swales and they're dug, they're ditches dug on contour. And what do we want to hold in our swales? We want to slow sink and spread the water, right? When you have a property and you create it, you design it at the beginning to, to store water, to capture and store water, then you, your earth, your land becomes kind of a water bank. And that is the foundation, of course, of growing food. Mm. Well, let's let's chat a little bit about that. Uh, permaculture is your game. Um, what is permaculture? Permaculture is freedom. Quite simply put, permaculture means permanent culture. And um, it was designed and founded by David Holmgren and Bill Mollison a couple generations back. David Holmgren is still with us. I just spoke to him a couple months ago on the phone. He's got a book called, I think it's called Retro Suburbia. And it lays out all of the details about how to transform our suburban landscapes into food producing landscapes. The current use of our land is radically unsustainable, and this is not by accident. It's by design of the controllers. Permaculture and freedom, it's all about creating local independence, decentralized food, water, and energy yeah. system, right? As opposed to centralized, who are all controlled by BlackRock and these entities that are not doing well for our world. I love that term, decentralized food. And it's so simple. And this is where we are helping people see how simple it is. When you go out into your suburban landscape, even the landscape at your schools and churches and community centers and parks, when you see all of the ornamental plants, plants that have the function of looking good and they might provide some habitat for animals, but when you stack on the function of actually producing food mm -hmm. as well as looks and habitat, now we've got the full package. Now, just by switching out the ornamentals with edible ornamentals, we will reverse mass extinction, deforestation. We will reverse cancer trends and heart disease trends and diabetes trends. We will end hunger and we will end tyranny by just doing that one logical thing. In permaculture, it's called stacking functions. Right? You look at the elements of a landscape, of a homestead, and you say, how can I add extra functions to what's already there? And how can we basically cross-pollinate? So for instance, we have a 3,000-foot fence at God's Landing, and we have a new vining plant, an edible plant, every 8 to 10 feet. Off of that fence in three years from now, we'll be able to create 100 bottles of wine just off that fence. And it, by the way, looks a lot better than a, a chain link fence when it's covered with life. I like something that also looks beautiful. Yeah. 
and, and what the amount of beauty and life that you have in a food forest is literally exponential. A lawn is a biological desert. It's a dead zone. A food forest has infinitely more life. I mean, the food forest we have at Gauss Landing, there's butterflies all over the place. You know, there's bees, there's life, there's birds. And now we're even bringing in some of the animals and we love to have animals in the system because animals have a very important function within the system. Uh, so a patch of grass, what you're saying is a, is a bad idea generally. Yes, grass has a couple functions. One is it's convenient for people who want to, you know, you want to lay out in the grass, you want to have your kids playing football, you want to have a golf course, you need some grass, right? Grass is not the problem. It's the use of the resources that go along with the grass. Grass takes more poisons, more chemicals, more human resources than any other crop and it does not provide food. So like in the United States, we have 44 million acres of grass approximately. And when we can turn just 30, 40, 50% of that grass along the edges, let's say, into perennial edible landscapes, using the same amount of resources, the same inputs, we will create a yield that will change the world. Why perennial? Yes, good question. So annuals are unnatural in the history of things. Annuals are plants that you plant once, then you eat them, you take the seeds out of some, you plant again, and you continue the process. Perennials are plants that you plant and they continuously provide for generations to come. There's an olive tree on the Greek Isle of Crete that was planted over 2,000 years ago that's still producing olives to this day. That's a perennial. And these things just, so a food forest is actually, it's like a abundance factory. It provides more and more food, more and more seeds year after year. One of my favorite quotes that I just heard lately is you can count the seeds in an apple but you cannot count the apples in a single seed. What you're saying, okay, so then if you've got a patch of lawn and it serves no real purpose, a, a better idea might be to turn it into some sort of food forest. Yeah, exactly right. Even along the edges of your property, take let's say five, six feet along the whole edge of your property and start putting food producing plants along the edge. If you, if people just did that, we would literally completely fix the food supply chain issues. Well, there's one other thing that we must do immediately, and that is to become aware of the poisons and the poison producers and turn away from them. We can no longer put poisons in a microbiome of our air, our water, our soil, our hearts, and our minds. Do you think, Jim, this a problem, um, that's being caused by mega farming. Yes, I mean, mega farming is the most destructive thing in the world today, even more so than big pharma or the military industrial complex. It's mining soil, it's destroying, toxifying, and mining the very foundation of life on our planet. We don't need 10,000 new thousand acre farms, we need 10 million new quarter acre farms mm. with, right it's 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 the idea and here's the best part about this this is good 
for the individual and the family on every single level. The odds of a family getting cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, when you walk out into your backyard, which is poison-free, and you eat poison-free food off the vine or off the tree or raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, all these things off the bush or mushrooms that you grow and cultivate in your own yard, which by the way, take less maintenance than the lawn. When you can walk outside and eat these healthy foods and just stand in the presence of this divine gift, you will be healed. You know, Hippocrates said, let thy food be thy medicine, let thy medicine be thy food. When we use our land without poisons and use it wisely, we start healing the earth and the soil is like the immune system of the planet. A healthy soil produces healthy trees, healthy plants and healthy food. But if you've got a soil that is unhealthy, then you need to add inputs that are often toxic and lacking of nutrient density. This is what you do at uh, Food Forest Abundance. That's exactly right. We launched about 18 months ago and we are now serving people in 15 countries and almost every U.S. state, helping people grow food, starting with design. In fact, we just got a new partner in Ghana, Africa, where we've been given management responsibilities for this 80 acre farm. And we are starting with the design process. And we're starting because it has a little bit of slope and a little river that comes in from the mountains. We're going to start by creating ponds, several levels of ponds at the very top of the property where we can catch that water. And then we're going to create an irrigation system. We're going to put fish into those ponds and add life to those ponds, which is an incredible resource by itself. And then we're going to take the irrigation systems out of those ponds to fertilize and irrigate, which is to fertigate all of the food forest below the ponds. How do you start? How do you, I mean, what's the process? We design from patterns to details. So we start with the big picture and we ask what agricultural zone is this property in? That's job one, because it's very important to put plants in the ground that are strong in that climate. Right? We don't want to put apples that love a Minnesota weather in a Florida landscape, and we don't want to put certain bananas in a Minnesota landscape. It simply won't work. And by the way, this is where it gets really exciting. There are thousands and thousands of different edible plants for Minnesota landscapes and for Florida landscapes. There are probably a few more in Florida because it's more temperate. But my buddy up in northern Minnesota, off the tip of Lake Superior, he has a food forest with over 300 different types of edible and medicinal plants growing on the property. So with the design, we start with ag zone, and then we go to the actual property layout. Is there water on the property? Do we need to focus on catching and storing water? Is there a shade? Is there a lot of maybe oak trees or cypress or different trees that create shade? Do we need to open up some of that area? And then we go into the customer's desires. What vision does the customer have for their property? And this is where it gets so much fun. Most customers have no idea what's possible. So when we start laying out what's possible, it gets really exciting. We put in guilds, uh, permaculture design puts in plants and guilds that are, first of all, in the right zone, in the right location in the property based on the sun and the wind and rain, and then the right plant combinations. So we're huge fans of comfrey. And um, of course you wanna have legumes in different 
cow peas and pigeon peas and mimosa and perennial peanut. And we put those in the ground around the plants. And then when you cut those, the little nodules in the roots of these plants release nitrogen into the soil. And then other plants like Moringa and Comfrey, they're biodynamic accumulators, which when their leaves fall, they build soil and they put this incredible diverse minerals into the soil. But Jim, this is just for rich people. <laughs> this is for anybody with five bucks, right? If you've got five bucks and you wanna start growing food, you can literally go to the store, you can buy a couple of the plants that you like. Maybe it's avocados, maybe it's watermelons. Make sure to get the one with seeds. Maybe it's grapes or tomatoes or cucumbers or zucchini or pumpkins. And you can actually buy those plants, apples, pears, peaches. You can then go on YouTube and you can say, how do I propagate this particular seed? And then you can actually start growing. Strawberries are fun. You just cut off the outside edge, put it on the ground, put some soil over the top, and now you're growing strawberries. And animals fit into the picture. Yes. So permaculture is a holistic approach to growing food. Animals are an absolutely essential part of every system. Um, we have cows, we have fish, we have chickens, and we're going to be getting goats here in the not too distant future, and maybe even some pigs. And then rotationally grazing these creatures in a wise way, in a way that mimics natural systems, right? Cows, they like to be in, in a group and they like to move. They like to go from one area to another area. And then and I was just watching one with Joel Salt and one of my heroes with Polyface Farms. Um, then about seven days after the cows are in a certain area, creating these big piles of manure, then he'll put the chickens in those areas. The chickens will then go in and they'll spread out the manure and they'll eat all the wood ticks and bugs and parasites. And, and they'll also spread out and then they provide their own nitrogen and their own manure. And by the way, this is where it gets amazing. In a polyface or in this kind of rotational grazing, a lot of people say cows are the problem. Cows are actually the solution to landscape problems. When you do it properly, they build soil and they build life right into the system. <laughs> you, you said cows move. <laughs> <laughs> move. Oh, God, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a dad joke. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, do you see every environment as an opportunity or are they just dead ends? Oh, I was driving down the road and I had my, my phone out and I was taking a video. This is the biggest opportunity on a global scale in the history of humanity. The opportunity is to go from an unsustainable use of resources throughout humanity to a regenerative and abundance creating use of resources. All of these lawns that you see everywhere, we can keep some of the lawn, but we can add in these perennial edibles that are literally going to take less maintenance and provide food for your great, 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 great grandkids. Is, <clears throat> excuse me. Is there ever um, an argument to be made for annuals and biannuals? Uh, yeah, sure. I love annuals. I love them not nearly as much as I like walking out in my yard and getting all the perennial spinaches and lettuces and fruits and berries and sweet 
just massive amounts of stuff. But my daughter's huge on cucumbers and I like cucumbers too. I like tomatoes. There are some tomatoes that are can be used as perennials. There are even some many other plants that will continuously reseed and come back. Um, so yes, and here's where I think annuals are most important in today's world. Annuals are fast. You can get a harvest of annuals from 45 to 90 days with most annuals. And that's what we need right now because the food supply chain has been destroyed. Most people don't know it yet, but it is baked into the cake. So now the solution to that centralized, destructive, poisonous process is go grow food out your back door. Correct me if I'm wrong, but bananas are annuals. Uh, um, they essentially have one cycle and, and that's it. Or am I wrong? Well, you're right about a particular plant, but while that banana plant is growing up, it's putting out pups. So we put a banana food forest, a section of bananas, about 13 different types of bananas in our food forest. And that was about 10 months ago. We have now harvested 80 pups, 80 new bananas Gee. out of that just in the first 10 months. And it's exponential because now those are growing up and some of those are putting up pups already. Bananas, so they've done studies showing the typical old banana plantations where they just had rows and rows of bananas. When somebody had the good idea in the permaculture network of putting bananas in a banana circle, then they can put all the water, they can have a, a, a swell or a trench where the water runs into the middle of that circle. They then also put the nutrients in the middle of that circle. And you can increase your yield by way more than 200% by simply using it in a, in a structure that mimics nature. And I've heard numbers that are far more than 200%, but at minimum, you can get a 200% extra yield simply by putting them in a circle with a hole in the middle. You know, I hate that word sustainable. Um, and I think it's a good opportunity to, to take that word back uh, because the way the United Nations uses it is absolutely 100% not how it's supposed to be used. Yeah, that's such a ridiculous scam. The word sustainable means a system that will produce more energy than it took to create and it takes to maintain. So it's an energy net positive system. What everything they're doing is absolutely unsustainable. And as we know, that's by design. It's for control of the minds and the hearts and the stomachs of the people. Regenerative or abundance are my words for that. Building soil is what this generation is all about. We must start building soil again. Number one, by taking the poisons out. And number two, by designing in systems that model nature that are proven to build soil. And I love to say this as well. The solution that I am referring to, mass adoption of putting these food forests in our backyards is not a hypothetical solution to all the world's biggest problems. It's a proven and demonstrated all over the world solution. So back to soil, building soil is, is job one. And then yes, some farms might focus on building acidic soil for plants like blueberries. Blueberries love acidic soil. How do you do that? You get some pine trees in the area or you get a lot of pine mulch and there's many other ways to help acidify soil. But again, when you put these proper guilds together with the right types of plants, then you can just set it and forget it as long as you've got your structure up front done right. 
the most common is people living in apartment blocks in the city center. Now, let's just say I I am that person. Jim, where do I start? Start by going online and researching how to grow food indoors. And the cannabis industry has proven this to be effective. They have turned closets into grow rooms. I just learned a couple years ago that um, tomato um, nutrients that are supposed to be for tomato propagation, that's code word for cannabis, which I thought was pretty funny. But the point is, is you can grow microgreens, you can grow sweet potatoes and potatoes, and you can grow pretty much anything indoors, as long as you create the right environment. And here are a couple tips that I've learned. I, I've grown so much food indoors. I turned my whole garage into a microgreens garage at one point. And you want to have airflow. That's key because otherwise you'll get mold, especially in a humid environment. You want to have an essential oil diffuser. Some, um, I like lemon and oregano and um, a couple other different um, essential oils because they're antifungal. So when you add the the wind, like a, a fan and some essential oils and then lighting. And, and then if you can do real soil, it's better than doing these hydroponic blends. And they've studied this. Real soil has far more diversity of nutrients that the body needs than these hydroponic blends. But if that's all you can get is a hydroponic blend, then it's worth doing. Is it possible to uh, make soil more nutrient dense? Big time. And, and it's simply by what the inputs are. So take your compost, your um, your scraps from your kitchen and put them in a five gallon bucket somewhere. If you have a friend that might have a yard or a lawn, can you know work with them. Say, hey, I'll help you grow food if we can share the yield in it. You can even use that as your compost um, you know, starter place. And then there's one other thing, compost tea is such an asset and worm castings are incredible. Worm castings are probably nature's best um, soil creation or soil additive. So if you can buy some worms and throw them in the soil or even get worm castings. And the other opportunity ahead is you can get a 50 gallon barrel and attach it to your gutter in your house and a rain barrel. And then you can get these little tea bags, you know, maybe a foot by a foot. You can put some compost in there with some worm castings and turn on a little air, a little bubbler. And within 24 hours, you've got 50 gallons of compost tea that took you 10 minutes of effort to create once you have the pieces. And now if you go online and buy one gallon of compost tea, it's $30. So imagine $50 or 50 gallons of that for 10 minutes of effort. And then you can sell that to your neighbors. You can use it on your own plants. It's incredible. Now, obviously when one is living in the suburbs, this is a lot easier to do. Yes. I mean, the, the land is the way that nature intended it to grow in soil is going to be a far better return on time and energy invested building soil and putting food producing plants in the soil. However, if you're in a city and you've got a rooftop that you, you can access, you can get, get, get big pots and go fill it up with good soil and just make sure you water it every couple of days and those will produce wonderfully as well. There's another thing, uh, your water, you have to find that water somewhere. Um, if, you, if you can't get it from under the ground, you're going to have to use what the municipality supplies. 
Yeah, which is really icky. The municipalities load their mm. water with toxins, and some of it is even, even by government mandate. So what I would do in that case is I'd get a filtering system. You do not want to pour municipal water full of poisons on your plants. And there are many systems. In fact, um, we just got one from Analemma that we're going to be using. And it actually structures the water, creates coherent water, which has many, many peer-reviewed studies showing the benefits. I can't, I'm very excited to show these off on our, on our channels. Jim, is there an optimal size? Yeah, the optimal size is any piece of lawn to start with. You know, um, one of my friends says the best place to start a garden is one foot outside your back door. If you have enough room for one berry bush, you want to get a blueberry or a mulberry or a raspberry, that will provide incredible value and joy for you and your family. But the more you have, of course, the more you're able to design and install, the better. A tenth of an acre. There are people in the world who live on one tenth of an acre and provide all of the food they need. What about integrating with non-edible plants? Does that work or yeah. is it not a good idea? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we've got like a, a bay rum tree. A bay rum creates the most amazing smell. And then we've got um, these other royal, different kinds of palms and different kinds of plants that are very colorful. And we've got multiple flower flowering plants that aren't edible flowers, but they provide the most amazing function of not only beauty, but they help feed the bees. We have beehives. Beehives are so wonderful. They not only provide you a lot of honey, but they, the bees themselves will go out into your garden and they will help you grow food by pollinating the plants. The main thing about handling these, um, these crops is the soil. So if you have, let's say, a certain kind of bug infestation come in, if you have all one type of plant, which is called a monocrop or a monoculture, the bugs can come in and without poisons, they will decimate the whole thing. They will eat some, they will breed, they'll have more bugs and pretty soon it'll be a plague of locusts or armyworms or whatever. When you have diversity in a system, and that's the most important thing after building soil is to put in diversity of plants. Because diversity, when you've got bugs that come in, they'll eat one or two plants, but then there's nothing else for them to to proliferate, oh. right? So like our farm, we have about 220 different types of edible plants already. If you have lots of diversity, you have a greater chance of less destruction. Completely less destruction and you'll have a lot longer harvest. You know, this current way of farming is really absolutely bass backwards. It is all it's super input heavy and then at certain times of the year you've got to work your asses off 24 hours a day these combines mm -hmm. are going we're in a perennial landscape the everything ripens on the vine or on the tree or on the bush a lot of times at different times so it depends on your climate like in minnesota you're going to get about a three to four month harvest and it's going to be a very massive harvest because the soil is so rich and where here in Florida, with this kind of diversity, we have a harvest of at least 10 to 20% of the plants all year long. 
And that's why we're creating these Freedom Farm Academies around the world. We have them going up in Thailand and Ghana and Canada and throughout the US and pretty soon they'll be all over the world. And a Freedom Farm Academy is so simple. It's an off-grid homestead that also functions as a demonstration and education site. And it also functions as an incredible business opportunity. Putting these Freedom Farm Academies, these freedom demonstration sites, these abundance demonstration sites makes so much sense because what we're doing is we're improving the value and the yield and the productivity of the land. And we are showing people what it's like to live this way, completely off the grid, because most people think that off the grid means like a cabin in the woods. It means like you have to have a beard and you, you know, you're, you're, you don't shower every day. That's complete bullshit mm. off grid. when it's done right, when it's designed right is literally freedom. Make everything work with everything. Yes. And to simplify that message, model nature. Model, and for people who want to use this term, model God's design, source's design, nature's design, which I think is all the same thing from my perspective. Model what works in nature and don't try to change it. Don't try to add chemicals that that's the wickedness. And these people that are putting them out at the top, they know that where a lot of farmers and us were waking up to that fact now. In fact, um, we, the, the, the lawsuits that have been filed against glyphosate in the billions of dollars, class action lawsuits. And Jeez. one of the things that they said at the corp corporation was, okay, we'll pay the fine as long as we can keep the product on the shelf. So you don't use any chemicals? No, no. Our, our chemicals come from the back end of a worm or a chicken or a cow or other plants. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I suppose it's, it makes it, sense. It, it, it's nature's way. It's mm. the design. Like this blows my mind. So you take a handful of soil and there's like billions of microbiome in that soil, billions of individual life forms. Right? in just a big handful of soil, more than there are people on the planet. And in that soil, there are so many seeds and a diversity of seeds. And here's how the wisdom of this system works. If the soil becomes compact, it will trigger the germination of a seed that has certain root structures and elements within the plant that dig into the soil and they basically dig down to create nutrient and water pathways. And they're very strong plants and they break apart the soil. Whereas if the soil is very loose, then certain seeds will take that information and they will germinate and they will spread out over the soil and they will bring it all together and create a mesh network. So it's incomprehensible how wise this system is. So there's a video on YouTube, I believe it's Jeff Lawton called Greening the Deserts of Jordan, where he went in and he created the first thing is catch and store and sink water into the land. So they might have a, a good rainfall once every two years. So they have to prepare for it. So they put these big swales in and they, they're miles long. And then when the rain came, instead of taking the nutrients off of the surface of the land and running them into a ditch into the ocean, they slowed the water and it sunk into the landscape. They heavily mulched these swales, which is just biomass. And they put the biomass in there. And a few years later, the local um, 
ecologists and, and people who are in the, the business of growing food, they were looking through these swales and they found mushrooms and they freaked out. They'd never seen mushrooms before. Now, 15 or so years later, he, they've got a green desert in or a green area in the desert of Jordan that produces an amazing amount of food. So basically any environment can be permacultured. Yes, and of course, some are easier than others. Deserts are a pain in the ass relative to mm. somewhere like Florida or Minnesota. Um, you got to put a lot more thought in, especially on the water piece of the puzzle. It's about, it's up to us. It's the, our duty to our posterity and to ourselves because it's joyful. It's mm. I have never felt better in my life. I'll be 53 in a month on Christmas Eve. What? I could do 30 wolves. Yeah, yeah. You don't I, even I've have any young. silvers. I don't see any silvers. I know, a few there. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, these these food forests are like the Garden of Eden. They're like the fountain of youth. It's it's really magical when I'm in this system. Um, people say, "How much do you work in your food forest?" I've never worked a minute in my life in my food forest. I enjoy the process of being in that food forest so much and observing the trees. These these sentient living things provide massive amounts of abundance for us. The more we interact with them, the more they produce. The more we pick the fruit, the more they produce. There's something divine, the connection yeah. that we have that we're not quite aware of yet. So I referenced my buddy's permaculture farm in Minnesota because he has he's a scientific-minded guy, and he has basically took an inventory of the birds and the frogs and the turtles and the insects. And he has birds on his property that have never been documented in North America, that they're from Russia. He has seven different types of turtles or something and like eight different types of frogs. Again, when life comes by your garden and it has a choice to live there or somewhere else, it's going to choose to live there because there's something incredibly abundant about it. So creating these food for us all around the world is like creating it's like an antivirus or an anti-cancer. It will spread. And this is another magical component about a food forest. I asked Chad, I said, Chad, what would happen if you walked away from your food forest and came back 30 years later? He said, Jim, I've been taking an inventory of the plants growing outside of the boundaries of my farm. And he said, I estimate that over 100,000 plants have been planted because of the birds and the wind and the rain coming into my farm, eating, and then going out and defecating, and now a new plant is, is born. Okay, the elephant in the room. Yeah. Moles. <laughs> moles, that's funny, the elephant, moles, right? Oh gosh, you know, diversity is the, the solution to all of it, and there are specific plants that the moles don't like, and the mosquitoes don't like. I was just walking around, we had the Hurricane Ian and, and we had a little bit of flooding in our lowlands and we had a lot of mosquitoes for about a week, week and a half. And when we walked in those grassy areas, it was insane with mosquitoes. When I came up and walked through the food forest, there were almost zero mosquitoes. The mosquitoes don't like that environment. There's something vibrational. There's some kind of frequency that goes on when you have a system like this, like the Garden of Eden. And the parasites, they're, they're not attracted to that system. And moles could be one of those pests that when you put the right systems in place, you won't have a mole issue. 
So again, diversity, we want some moles in the system. We want birds, we want animals, mm -hmm. we want herbivores. Everything is part of this big natural system. And then when you design it to be hyper-productive, well, then that's where everybody becomes completely free. Chat to me a little bit about greenhouses. You haven't spoken about that. So interestingly, I used to only speak about that before I learned what I've learned today. I've created um, two, designed two really fancy greenhouses. One was called the Permacube and the other was the Food House, F-U-U-D-H-A-U-S. And the Permacube is basically the same idea where we had a greenhouse that had biogas. It had aqu aquaponics, it had hydroponics, it had vertical stacked food, it had a microgreens area, it had a dehydration system, and it was all operated on solar panels with water catchment. Even we had a bug zapper, an LED light that served as a bug zapper over our fish tank. So zzz, boom, drop fish food into the fish. Like it was so cool. And I thought I was really cool for designing it. <laughs> and then I really got into permaculture and realized that, yeah, it's a cool greenhouse, but the return on investment in, in every way, not just financial, but for life of building soil is infinitely more than any of these fancy systems. And you don't build, uh, build soil in a greenhouse. Yeah, I mean, you can, but exactly. You build soil by going out into the natural system and creating the right design elements. So soil, so, you know, I, I've never truly built soil and I've never grown a plant. Soil builds itself and plants grow themselves. We just give them the right structure and the right home to do so. We planted, uh, like planting plants in the wrong place. There's a place where we have in our property where the water table is kind of high. Some plants love what's called wet feet. They love to get their roots right in the water. Jabba de Kaba, for instance, you can have those partially submerged for three months a year and they just love it. Where there's other plants that hate it. So I've had several plants die because I didn't know where the water table was. Other plants like to dig down really deep and they like to search for things. And so if you give them too many nutrients right where they are, they kind of stunt their growth in a way, actually. They're, all their roots will stay right there. Um, there's one failure that I want to share. Do you remember when they did these geodesic domes in the desert where they had, I can't remember the name of that dome, but the trees in that dome, after they grew to a certain size, they would simply fall over because there was no wind in the system. Like if, if you go to a forest, the trees on the edge of the prairie to, to where the forest starts are gonna be the thickest and strongest trees because they take the wind. And if there's no wind, then the roots weaken. Exactly, the roots don't have to do what they normally do because mm -hmm. there's no reason for the plant to spend that energy in that way. The plant recognizes, oh, there's no wind, there's no wind, I don't, I can just spend my energy doing this, that, and produce fruit and so on. But when you have a natural environment, then you have all of those elements. In fact, a lot of permaculturalists will never even set up irrigation for their permaculture food forests because they want the plants in their system that are hardy enough to survive for that zone without irrigation. Me, I love, like we, we've got a pond, we put 14,000 fish in the pond, six different species of fish. 14,000? Yeah, little, little fish in a four acre pond. 
So they'll grow up. They'll turn into big bass and catfish and sunnies and all that. But we use the water from that pond to fertigate the food forest around the pond on a solar timer. You sent me photo, uh, drone photographs of your ground uh, before and after, and it is magical, the difference. Yeah, yeah, six months. The, the picture, the first picture that I sent, the brown one, was mm. basically six months before the second picture, which was green. And I'm actually blown away because we dug the material out of the pond to lift our development up by about seven feet to take it out of the, the flood zone. And so it was inert. It was, it was a desert. It was basically, it was just sand. It was Florida sand that was 15 feet underground on average. We then started by putting wood chips on the ground. The first thing you wanna do if you have soil that's exposed to the sun and the wind and the rain is you wanna cover the soil. Exposed soil will turn into desert and dead soil. That's what the Dust Bowl was all about. It's about the farmers tilling and ripping up the soil, just destroying all the mesh networks and the mycelial networks, and then boom, it, it caused mass chaos, which is happening now again. So um, the first thing is put the wood chips down. Then you start putting the right plants in place. Like go over your land with a bunch of beans, a bunch of legumes, and just throw them everywhere. And then those will create a green layer and then underground is where the real magic is. So underground, they're creating those root structures and they're bringing life back into the soil. And then we would put holes in certain places where our design stated and we would put the fruit trees with good soil and then we'll add compost tea about once every two or three weeks, which is more than normal, but I don't think you can have too much compost tea. We, we see the path to freedom. We see the path to wellness and health and abundance. And thanks to you, Germ, thanks to what you do and all of these other amazing people, we are spreading the word. Because if you look at this as a military strategy, we've got the military strategy that without which we will never be free, we will never win the war. If you look at this as just a way to have a great life, I mean, it literally serves every function mm. that's good that we can imagine. I know you said that you want to try and replicate nature as close as possible, but in some instances you need to fence off, let's say, chickens because they will just destroy everything. It's completely acceptable to do whatever makes sense. That's what permaculture is. It's a design science of logic mimicking what works in nature. Now, here's a vision that I have that I am certain is the way that it was meant to be. When you create a permaculture food forest and you simply let the animals be at your neighbors, then there will be balance that's created by the system itself. We become the apex predator in our system. So for instance, um, there's a guy who was on a TED talk. He created the best foie gras. He won the French championship. He was an Italian guy. He won the French championship two years in a row and the French went batshit crazy. They said, he's cheating, right? Well, here's what he did. He created, a, a designed a structure, a pond, and then put all these plants around the pond and the geese would fly over and he would call them in and they would stay. Now, normally for foie gras, you have to grab a goose by the neck and you have to li literally stuff it until it's liver, until it practically dies. It's literally in chains its whole life. And then it dies and you, you, you take the liver. He didn't have to do any of that. He created the environment where the geese were so happy that a new 
harvest of geese would come every year. He would take them around the corner. He'd harvest them. The other geese wouldn't know what was happening. They would stay and then they would call in more geese. So it's a completely closed loop system. It's open to the environment, but there's mm. no what's needed. Uh, uh, Tracy is asking, but won't the chickens eat the bugs? <laughs> yes, the chickens will eat the bugs. The chickens are the best predator for wood ticks and all sorts of other bugs that eat your plants. Now, here's the thing about chickens. They'll start with their favorite food and that's going to be the bugs. If they run out of their favorite food, then they're going to eat your crops. So that's why rotational grazing or making sure that you have the right number of birds or any kind of animal in the system, that's important. It's about balance. Uh, she's got a, an extension to the question. Well, more of a comment, but she says, we've got a stream in front of our property. I wonder if I could do freshwater oysters. Oh gosh, absolutely. Streams, especially if there's, well, if there's an elevation drop, then streams are really good for micro hydro. And if there's not a, an elevation drop, then yes, I would absolutely experiment with oysters and freshwater prawns. And then if you um, take some of your uh, kitchen scraps, maybe some meats and put it in the water, you know, it, it kind of, you'll kind of get a sense about how much you should do. Now they'll simply congregate there because that's where their meals are coming. Jim, give me your, your favorite setup. So I would stack it, right? Depending on the zone, I, underground, I would put sweet potatoes and potatoes and ginger and turmeric, which are great spices and medicines, and taro and uh, juca, tequisque, um, cassava, which a couple of those things are like cassava and um, it's the same thing. But anyway, I'd put the roots and tubers in the ground. They're gonna start growing underground. Then I would put a layer of mushrooms and kind of an herbaceous layer. A lot of different basils and herbs are good at the, at the right at the ground level. And then I would start with berries, raspberries and blueberries and blackberries. And there's infinite types of berries that you could grow. If there's a fence around the area, I would start putting grapevines and passion fruit, depending on your zone, on the fence. And then I would have one big, a, a kind of a shorter or two or three shorter fruiting trees. They've got like miniature lemons and limes and apples and pears and plums and everything. And then I would have one overstory fruit tree in that hundred square feet or a thousand square feet area do you have pets like dogs and cats yes yes and they love the food forest okay so they don't damage it no not at all Nah, they they just sometimes they pee and poop and that's wonderful you don't pick up in fact one of the silliest things in the world is all these these people taking poop and putting it in a plastic bag and sending it to a landfill right? Poop, that is nature's fertilizer. Or even more silly is when people take the leaves that fall off the trees, those leaves are nutrient packs that build soil. People put those all in a big pile and then they put them in, in plastic bags and they ship them off to a landfill. I, and when I see those, I put them in the back of my truck and I bring them to my farm. <laughs> but the thing, Jim, you talk about the dogs. The truth is nobody nobody wants their garden to smell like shit. <laughs> well, if you have 30 or 40 dogs in an acre, maybe you're you're in trouble. But we have one. So I have never smelled like smelled I've never had that experience, but I know right. that that's what people think in their heads. <laughs> and they don't want to walk in it either. 
Yes, and that's where observe and interact comes in. Watch where you're stepping, right? In a food forest, you know, 11 people in the United States are killed supposedly by spiders and by um, snakes a year. 11 people. There are more people that die of the poisons that are used to kill spiders and snakes times a bunch, right? So, and that's because people are maybe not paying attention. Um, and I don't want to freak anybody out because it, it's to be, if, if we're going to be scared of something, right? And I think fear is actually the biggest illusion, the biggest poison there is. But I would be more fearful of the idea of getting cancer, heart disease, or diabetes, which kill billions of people, you know, tens of millions a year, than something that is, relatively speaking, only good for us. Yes, but I mean, as you've pointed out, if your if your food is nutrient dense and you're eating correctly, you're not going to really get sick. Exactly. And you're not going to, these things aren't going to harm you. Everybody has cancer in their body all the time. And the, the cancer, by the way, what is cancer? It's the uncontrolled growth of mutant cells. It's just cells that are growing out of control. When we provide the body with a healthy foundation, then the macrophages, the bodies, the immune system will take those out in a heartbeat. And the other thing is a three-day fast will eat up the cancer. A water fast, a three-day water fast is fantastic. Food is the answer. Hippocrates nailed it. And when we eat food and drink water that is healthy and pure, then our bodies will do what our bodies do. They will heal themselves from the inside out. The other thing that's really important is having a free mind, a mind free of the programming and the chaos and the fear and the humiliation, the shame and the rage and the pride and all these kind of lower level vibrations. Uh, Tesla said, if you want to find the secrets to the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, mm. and vibration. I'll change one word in that. Don't think, feel, experience. When you take a few deep breaths and you start feeling your body, feeling the energy, the frequency, you can actually feel yourself becoming more alive. And that is the same as healing. Tell me about that project you did recently at the school. The school one? Oh, what an amazing project. So a woman named Patty founded a school back, I'd say it was, I think she said six, seven years ago, she started with four kids in a little, in a little one room place. Now she's got 700 plus kids in a, a really nice size school. And she was a fan of what we're doing. So we went and we installed, we designed and installed a food forest for the kids at the school. And we just did it uh, last Saturday and it was so epic. Um, we had about 50 people there and we had news outlets coming and we had a lot of people excited because when the kids, when we can help kids learn about self-reliance, about where their food comes from and how to grow food naturally without poisons. And then when kids grow food and they go out and they pick a peach or a raspberry or a blueberry and they eat it, there's a certain wonderful pride that goes with that accomplishment, the accomplishment of helping this plant grow food. And yeah, this is how we're, we're scaling this, by the way. If anybody out there has a school and you want to do the most logical thing with your land or a church or a city park or a, a business of any kind, 
no matter what, if you have grass, we can design and we can come in and design and turn that property into a life-giving property that brings smiles and joy to everybody that it sees. There's a peacefulness that comes over me when I'm outside. And especially when I'm disconnected, I'm unplugged. I've got my phone inside the, my house or wherever. And I'm just walking and just looking around and smelling and feeling and hearing and tasting. It's, it's an amazing experience and it is life-giving. It is a healing experience for sure. And obviously if you eat the animals that you happen to have in your, in your homestead, they themselves are also uh, healthier. Very much so because they're raised without poisons. And I also go through an energetic process. If we're harvesting animals, I, I, I stay very conscious and I give thanks. Now this energy of being thankful for the energy that we're, that the animal has and transferring that to us, there's something magical about being thankful. There's something, you know, the law of attraction misses a lot of um, important points, but the one truth about the law of attraction is whatever energy that we put out there, that we resonate, we start attracting that energy back to us and it becomes an amazing cycle. Uh, and that's, by the way, what the indigenous tribes did. I've watched a lot. I lived in Africa with the Maasai for a couple of months, and I learned so much from them. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have anything like that. And we walked through the bush. There was one day we were walking as the sun was coming up over the Maasai Mara, and you could hear the hyenas and the elephants and the different animals. Zebras were so loud. And I remember thinking there could be a lion or a leopard in any of these, you know, any behind any of these bushes. Um, but anyway, to be connected again with the earth, with Mother Nature, is so profound. Hold on, tell me a little bit more about when you were there. That's an that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, it was so incredible. So I was on a backpack. I had um, I was going home from, I was traveling around the world just by myself with a backpack, living on a backpacker's budget. And I wanted to see as much diversity as I could see. I was in Indonesia. I spent time in Karachi, Pakistan, which was a really energetically tough place to be for me. And then I got to the Maasai Mara. I fell in love with the people and how they lived. I mean, one thing that blew my mind, they would come, I, I started out as, at a tourist camp and then the Maasai would come to the camp and they would hang out and sometimes they'd do dances or tell stories. Sometimes people would give them some money for kind of a dance that they did. And then we got to know each other. I got to know this guy named Salash. And he said, do you want to come and see my home? And I said, yes, I absolutely want to come see your home. So we took a long walkabout through the bush. And the first place we went, which was like, it seemed like it was a three hour walk. There was a little wooden hut in the middle of the Maasai Mara. And we walked up to this hut and they spent their week's pay, which is like a few bucks, to buy 10 ounce Coca-Cola bottles that were warm. There was no refrigeration in this hut. They drank the Coca-Cola bottle in five, 10 seconds, put it down, and, and then we walked to their, to their house, their village, which was surrounded by this type of buckthorn, this type of thorn to keep the wildlife out at night. The cows would come in at night and, the, and it was all in a circle and the houses were made of mud and cow shit and sticks. 
And I remember brushing my teeth with a neem tree. Now I didn't know it was a neem tree at the time and it might not have been, but now when I look at the two, the teeth benefits of neem, I, I kind of think it was. And we would brush our teeth with the neem tree. They poked the cow in the neck and I drank some of that mixed with um, blood, mixed with um, milk. And it was, it tasted like warm, bloody milk. You know, <laughs> it was, was kind of weird, but they were healthy. They're, when they smiled, their, their, their complexion was so dark that when they smiled, it was like they turned on a light. It's just amazing. And I suppose when you, with the Maasai, you realize that white men can't jump. <laughs> you know, what's so funny is we were in a circle. So I got invited to this party and I didn't know all about it, right? They get me there and they said I was the first outsider to, to be part of this ritual. It was a circumcision party. It was, Gee. I know. Oh, dude, I'm still pissed that I got circumcised back 52 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, and, and this is back when I was 29 years old and I didn't have the same belief systems and knowledge I do now. But the point was, is the, the, the family of the young man, the 14 year old boy, man, getting circumcised was jumping up and down and convulsing. And one guy was laying on the ground, like going through a seizure. And I love psychology. I'm like, why are they doing this? Well, I asked, I asked a million questions, by the way, when I was there and they said, if the boy screams out in pain or fear, then it is shame on not only the boy, but on the boy's family. So the boy has to sit stoically while the tip of his penis is getting cut off. Um, you know, they used to use a rock. Now they had a regular knife. Um, but, but after the party, then we went walking about in the bush and they found these roots and they boiled these roots and they were guzzling it down and it was kind of like an alcohol and there, some of them were puking up like major vomits and, and then we did the jump thing and I actually did the Maasai jump for a half of a day. <laughs> but they get some serious height, don't they? Oh, dude, it's freaking amazing. And they're so slender and so strong. They're just, their bodies are just chiseled because they eat protein. They eat super well off the land. And when they jumped up, yeah, it was, it was pretty impressive. Chat to me just a little bit about um, how you eat uh, because a lot of permaculture is about food. Um, yeah. But are you, are you just a jack of all trades or do you hone in on certain foods? So I love diversity. I I have my weaknesses, right? Um, but I no longer eat food, foods grown with poisons unless I'm out to eat somewhere and I'll try to get some ocean raised salmon or ocean raised whatever. I'll try to, and I, I've taken the buns off of everything. If I do order a burger or a fish sandwich, I'll just say, get the bun out. Okay, so you're low carb. Low, oh yeah. I, no more breads. Breads cause me pain. Mm, I'm the same. I get a lot of heartburn. Yeah. And I feel shitty. I just feel less mm. energized after bread. I'll summarize it from a couple of different really quick perspectives. Uh, Victor Hugo said there's one thing stronger than all of the armies of the world. And that is an idea whose time has come. He didn't say a new idea. This is an ancient idea. The idea is permaculture. The idea is the Garden of Eden. The idea is using our resources with care and with thoughtfulness and wisely. Right? So that's one. The other one is Napoleon Hill's quote, which I think about every single day. Whatever the mind of man or woman can conceive and believe it can achieve. 
that's profound if we sit and meditate on that and then ask ourselves the question what can my mind conceive and believe because if napoleon hill who studied the most successful people in the history of the world deducted this then i'm going to believe that it's true and i am going to believe at the highest level that i can possibly believe and conceive and here's what i know i know that we have the ability to radically transform this world from unsustainable and dying to radically abundant simply by taking the poisons out and designing our land to be productive. Jim Gale, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you, Jerem. I appreciate you and everything you do. I love your show. Uh, well, I love your work, so it takes two to tango. My name is Jerem. This is Jim Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.